0: When the Pharisees attempted to outwit Jesus in John chapter 8, he concluded by informing them before Abraham was, I am. When the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he also instructed his servant to tell the people, I am sent you. Interestingly, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus candidly asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Could this be another indicator that Jesus offers a prelude to the gospel in the book of Exodus. What are the possible relationships of the 10th plague in Egypt, the Passover lamb, and the Ark of the Covenant have to do with the good news of salvation in Christ? Join us now as we explore all of this and much more in Moses' new Jesus, the gospel in Exodus. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Well, good day, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thank you so much for joining today. Uh, Our topic is Moses knew Jesus, the gospel in Exodus. This ties to something I started a few weeks back, exploring the information in the book of Genesis. And I said Moses knew Jesus, the gospel in Genesis. And now we're going to transition to the gospel in Exodus. Uh, I anticipate that I will be exploring more and more of these Uh, throughout the year, possibly into next year. I just find the information so transformative, so compelling, uh, that this, to me, is even further proof, further evidence in the uh, validity of Scripture, in the veracity of Jesus Christ. Uh, And why do I say that? Well, if you consider that the age of, let's say, the book of Exodus, where we're going to be discussing today, which was written By by Moses. Uh, He penned the first five books of of the Old Testament, also known as the Torah. And, uh, you know, this was roughly 1,500 years or so uh, before the birth of Jesus. And there's so much information that details Jesus that aligns exactly with the Gospel Accords. And, you know, there's so much mention if you go to the Gospels where Jesus himself referenced Moses. So we're going to explore all that. And I believe, you know, you will see the gospel, uh, that that theme from Genesis to Revelation is, is the is the unfolding message that Jesus uh, uh, has presented Himself as Lord and Savior and sacrificed for us, so that we may spend eternity with God, but also to live a rich and uh, enjoyable life here, a challenging life here. So uh, I I hope you enjoy what we're about to unfold because. I, again, this makes the evidence overwhelming, uh, how it just correlates perfectly with the the life uh, of Jesus and the good news that Jesus presented with his life. Uh, let me pause for one second. If you wouldn't mind, hit the like and subscribe button. Uh, if you enjoy information like this and, and uh, share the information, please share the information. There's a share button on uh, on YouTube and some of the other platforms, the podcast platforms or copy and paste the link. Again, it just helps us get the information out there because, you know, where I said we're trying to point to to the veracity of Scripture, and for those who may not know Jesus or may not be believers or skeptical, they're just not sure what to believe, this to me is more evidence that gives them uh, credibility or maybe ease or uh, um, address some of the questions or challenges that they may have or some of the doubts that they may have. So if you wouldn't mind... And also, if you could jump on our email list, go to rusticoutlook.com and sign up for our email because we will be sending information in October and November about some new things coming up, some live interactions, some Bible gatherings through NetZoom, but also letting you know about new topics. So let me get right into this. Um, Let me actually just preface it because I stated this in the earlier one when we explored Genesis. Jesus and and the and the apostles they shared the the scriptures they shared the uh, the information from the Old Testament. Remember, I mean this may sound simplistic, but there was no New Testament in Jesus' day. There was no New Testament in Paul's day. Uh, you know, during the Book of Acts and so forth. So they relied on the scriptures of the prophets and 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 uh, many of the Old Testament writers. Um, so and and Jesus would point to this. Jesus would would would. Uh, would read from this and and you know there's there's the account where uh in, I think it's in the gospel of Luke where they just say how the scriptures came alive to us when Jesus would walk and recite these scriptures and you know because he knew it intimately because he was there and and this is how we're going to break this down so you know ho- hold on to your uh, to your hats and and, and I think you're going to enjoy this ride and you may want to take a couple of notes here because there's some really great information that I hope will challenge you, invigorate you, and potentially, you know, just build your faith even stronger that that Jesus had this from day one. So in order to kind of set the stage, I need to just go back a little bit near the end of Genesis. I want to talk about the story of joseph and hopefully you know many of you are familiar with that and uh, how he was sold into slavery in egypt because that time in egypt really kind of sets the stage for a lot of what will happen in the exodus so while jesus was sold into into slavery of uh, joseph i'm sorry was sold into slavery in egypt by his brothers moses was born into slavery and condemned to death like all other hebrew babies of his generation Jesus was faced with a death sentence by the king from his birth. Remember, Herod wanted him dead, and so was Moses. So they were both condemned to death at 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 babies, at infants. But miraculously, for God's purposes, he raised. Uh, uh, he was saved by I should say by the daughter of Pharaoh, and she raised her him as a as a prince of Egypt, placing him in a position from which he would one day become the deliverer of his people. Jesus' family. Remember, they, they were warned by the angels. They fled to Egypt to save the newborn son, but Moses was destined to lead his people out of Egypt. So there, there, there's an interesting dichotomy there. After Moses uh, fled Egypt, he was living with his wife Zipporah, tending the flocks with his father-in-law Jethro. And remember, that's when he had that famous encounter with, with God that would lead him to fulfill his destiny as one of the Utmost central characters of the Bible, as a matter of fact, the first prophet of the Bible. But what's very, very interesting, I think, is his work was not finished when he died. Remember, he did not get to enter into the Promised Land, so that work that that God had for him, you know, as great as he was, as as incredible as he is, and you know, we're still talking about him today. Uh, but he did not fulfill or finish the calling, I should say. So. I just wanted to point that out. So going to Joseph, and again, I'm making some assumptions here that you're familiar with the story of Joseph. Uh, For hundreds of years, the Hebrew people, the sons, daughters of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they lived in Egypt as slaves. They had come to Egypt to survive a famine. Remember, Joseph interpreted the the dream, and he said, you'll have seven years of uh, plenty and then seven years of famine. Uh, But they were able to stay under the protection of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, who was what I would call a prime minister uh, uh, for the Pharaoh. But after Joseph died, the new Pharaohs came up, new leaders came up, and they assumed power. And what was happening was the Jewish population, the Hebrew population, continued to grow and grow. So I just wanted to set the stage that uh, the, the Hebrew nation, came to Egypt to escape famine and found favor because of uh, Joseph and, and what he did for his family. So they, uh, they, they began populating that area, but then the pharaohs became nervous because they were growing and, uh, you know, they, they were increasing in numbers. So seeing this as a potential threat to Egypt, the pharaoh enslaved and they oppressed them, and they even attempted to limit their population growth, something that, that you will see in certain nations today. But this period of enslavement, it was not a punishment by God. It was a period of incubation for the people that he had set aside. He wanted them to be his holy set-apart nation. He would use them to bring the light of his law and his offer to all people of salvation. Moses was God's chosen vehicle to bring his people back to the Holy Land that he promised to be the heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest in Genesis. So now when you get back to the burning bush, uh, Moses' encounter with Jesus came when he was leading his flock to Mount Horeb, also known as Sinai, and saw the burning bush. Uh, you know, I think the whole world is familiar with this story. Moses encounters God, the burning bush, uh, made famous in books and movies and, and children's books and whatnot. Uh, I hope to one day do a, a little bit of a piece on where is Mount Sinai, and there's very very interesting evidence that it actually looks like it's in the the uh, it's in Saudi Arabia in the deserts of Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of good information. I hope to uh, explore that topic with you one day. Um, and just side note, while I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, if you think about the rich. Um, archaeological discoveries that that lie there that the Saudi Arabian government will not let people do, will not let them explore. Because remember, that's right on the border of Israel and uh, that's where we know a lot of the history was. So I think, you know, should those doors ever open, you're going to find a ton of valuable information, archaeological digs, I'm sure would be of of great value to the world uh, to explore. But I digress. How do we know that this was the person of Jesus to whom Moses spoke at Horeb? Uh, Because I will say that it was Jesus who was in the burning bush. And why do I say that? Because Jesus is uh, is always present. When God appears to men throughout the Bible, it is always Jesus who interacts with humankind. Remember, he is the word that became flesh. He is the the intermediary. He is our, our, our king and high priest. Uh, Timothy two five For there is one God, but there is one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus. So if, if God is appearing to man as he is in the burning bush, that points to Jesus Christ. As illustrated in Genesis, Jesus is the creator of all things. He is God. He and the Father are one, but Jesus is the one mediator. He is the one that puts himself together between God the Father and man. In this very specific counter that I'm I'm referencing, Moses asked for God's name so he could speak on his behalf to the children of Israel. God told him in Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And he said, This shall they say unto the children of Israel. Tell them, I am hath sent unto you. I am. Now what I find fascinating is if you go to John 8.58, Jesus, when he was approached by the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they say, "Who do you? Who are you?" And most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus himself, in the Gospel John eight fifty eight, answers the objections uh, or, or the traps and the ensnarements that they were trying to get him in. But his answer was, "I am," and just as he told Moses, "Who do you say?" And he says, "I am sent you." And I, and I I have to go to. Uh, or let me just say this: when Jesus was asked by his accuser whether he promised uh, he was the promised one of God, his his response shocked them. But the response is found in three of the four gospel accounts, so you know it, it, it's pretty clear there. But also when when Peter was addressing his disciples, what did he ask? And he said, who, you know, first he said, who do the people say I am? And then specifically talking with Peter, he said, who do you say I am? And that's when Peter famously writes, you are the Christ. And he says, this has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. But so right there, there's very interesting information. God says to uh, um, Moses in Exodus, I am. Jesus said he responds to the the questions brought before him. Who, do, who are you? I am. And then Jesus, again, in another account to his disciples says, who do you say I am? So here you have three different accounts of I am. All right, let's keep going. I I found that. I, I it, As I was researching this, I, I just kind of went upon this and I went, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Another one of those. How did I miss that? So <clears throat> I, I kind of want to transition here. So there's always the case with the encounters between God and the Bible. It's It's throughout. Um, it's always Jesus because he is the word. He's, he's the creator of all things. He's always the intermediary. So at the burning bush, we see, we see Jesus in the book of Exodus. He is the one and only mediator between God and the Godhead of humankind. Each and every time human beings hear directly from God or they see God or they meet with God or they make covenants with God. Every experience in God's presence and witness, his miracles, it is the mediator, the one we know as Jesus, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom they encounter each and every time. So every time that you read an encounter specifically uh, uh, where where they can see and they have that encounter man with with God, it is always Jesus who is there. The one exception would be messages which are, delivered by angels, but the angels identify themselves. So there's certainly been those encounters where you had a message from the Lord, but it was the angels that delivered it, and that more often than not is usually the angel Gabriel. Uh, It was Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord God of the Hebrews, who led the children out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. It was Jesus speaking to Moses on Mount Horeb when he whispered in his ear, and he demanded of the Pharaoh, let my people go. It was Jesus who stretched out his mighty hand to smite Egypt with all of its wonders, which he had warned that he would do, Exodus three nineteen and 20. So all of those plagues that you see, and you see that direct interaction, that is Jesus. There is no difference between God the Father and God the Son. They are one, they are inseparable, they are unchanging. Je- Hebrews 13, 8 says, "...Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever." So you know, throughout we're, we're we're seeing in the book of Exodus, the the, the Christ child, the man, the, the the man that we would know as Jesus. Exodus ten, uh, there's fascinating information joined uh, to the Gospels here. This tells the story uh, of the people who could not save themselves; they repeatedly fell short of God's mark. The Hebrew for the Hebrew people, this failure was manifest in the physical world. Unless God intervened, they would be trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, and, and he was absolutely bent on annihilating them. They would have been absolutely slaughtered if it wasn't for God interceding. But God parted the sea. He offered what I would say would be a type of baptism as they as he parted the waters and they went through the waters as you know, these are famous stories, so I'm not breaking them down down, uh, but you can find this in Exodus 14. In Exodus 12, we see the first Passover, uh, which is what I consider a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. God instructed Moses to tell the children of Israel how to protect themselves from judgment that was to befall Egypt because of Pharaoh's refusal, because of his his, his, his stubbornness, I'll say, that he would not let his people go or let the Jewish people go the slaying of the firstborn, both of man and beast. Notice the Passover details in Exodus 12 and their fulfillment in Jesus. So let me break this down for you. Consider the Passover, consider Jesus. Each family was to sacrifice a lamb, verse 3. John one twenty nine. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Lamb must be without blemish, in verse 5. Jesus also had to be and was without sin. First Peter one nineteen, Hebrews 4.15. The next point, 3. The Lamb must be slain by the whole assembly of the congregation. Verse 6. Jesus was sentenced to death on the cross by the multitude of the people, or the assembly, when they cried, Crucify Him. Mark 18, or fifteen eight through 14 Next, the blood of the Lamb must be sprinkled on the lintels and the doorposts of each dwelling. Verse 22. Think of that what, what that blood-spattered door would look like forming the image of the cross. And if you're following me on video, I, I'm, I'm kind of showing this to you in the upper right. Each inhabitant of the house must feed upon the lamb, verse 4. To be saved, everyone must partake of the lamb of God, John 6:51 through 56. Last, the lamb must be eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, verse 8. These requirements foreshadow the need for true penitence, obedience, sincerity through Jesus' offering of salvation. So it's abundantly clear that that, that whole layout uh, of, of the Passover points to Jesus, points to the cross, points to the sacrificed lamb, the spotless lamb. It's, it's over the top, abundantly clear. I hope it is anyway to you. It is me. So, Staying on that theme about Jesus being the Passover lamb uh, exodus twelve twenty four through twenty five says the following and you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever, and it shall come to pass when you become come to the land which the Lord will give you according to what He has promised that he shall keep his serve you shall keep his service. so consider this: the children of Israel were instructed to make Passover a permanent holy day so that its greater meaning would not be forgotten by future generations. That meaning came to fulfillment through Messiah's death on the cross, incidentally, on the Passover, and then his resurrection three days later was the uh, the Feast of First Fruits. So here we are, 2,000 plus years later, and we're still celebrating the Passover, still pointing to the cross of Jesus and the sacrificial lamb. It's an Exodus where we are first shown that salvation from sin does not come without the shedding of blood we can see this in Hebrews 9:22 the tenth and final plague amongst the upon the Egyptians brought about to the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt except for those who were marked by the blood of the spotless lamb only these escape judgment. so again pointing to that you're marked that you're uh, that you're indicated in heaven and I believe, you know, side note, this is just my personal opinion that this is also another indicator that we would not be partaking in the tribulation, that we are marked and we would uh, escape the judgment of the tribulation. Thus, the first Passover demonstrated while pointing a future Passover, which is the lamb which would be slain for the sins of the whole world. Exodus thirteen one through two, God instructs Moses to sanctify to him all of the firstborn among the children of Israel through their generations. So it's the firstborn that's set aside. And interestingly enough, isn't it the firstborn of Mary or Miriam, as she was known, who would become to offer the redemption of the world to her firstborn son, Jesus or Yeshua, uh, as pronounced properly in that time? Now I want to transition to the Ark of God's Covenant, which is prevalent throughout the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant was built by God's people according to his specifications. On one level, it was built to carry the two tablets, which are the Ten Commandments of stone, which were written with the finger of God. Uh, We can see this in Exodus 31. On another level, it is a symbol of Jesus. It is the Ark of the Covenant, and what does the covenant offer? covenant offers today redemption, restoration, the kingdom, same as the ark offered at that time. The ark was made with wood, thus like the Savior who would enter the world in a human form as the seed of a woman, it has an earthly substance, but it is much more than just wood. Every part of this tabernacle, this covenant was covered with gold, which I believe suggests Jesus Christ's kingship. The ark embodies the law just as Jesus who fulfilled it does. He covers it with his shed blood to provide the forgiveness over the infractions of the law. So if you need more confirmation of the significance of the ark, consider what sits on top in the center between the two angels on either side. It is the mercy seat. It is the mercy seat where where Jesus went to the Father after the resurrection and deposited his blood into the mercy seat. The ark was kept in the tabernacle or the tent, yet another representation of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 9.11. It says, but Christ becoming a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Jesus' destiny was to come or to camp with us on this imperfect earth with these imperfect people. All right, so I'm starting to bring this to the close and and you know here we see, and when I say, you know Jesus knew Moses, well, here you see it where at the transconfiguration, uh, uh, as accounted for in the uh, synoptic Gospels, and by that I mean Matthew Mark and Luke, they all tell the story of the Transfiguration. John kind of alludes to it. Uh, Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah in the glory before the three apostles. Uh, scripture says, his face shone like the sun, uh, just as it says in Matthew 17, too, much as Moses did after spending time with God atop the, the Mount Horeb. Uh, remember, Moses, uh, his face turned white, his hair turned white because he was in the presence and the glory of the Lord. Um, there on top of the mountain, Jesus spoke with his servants, Moses and Elias or Elijah, Peter suggested making three tabernacles or tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But obviously, if he was, you would not make that, you would only make that to to Jesus. But now what's interesting is if you go fast forward to Revelation twenty one three, we see the complete fulfillment of the tabernacle. Remember, it says in there, this is John, and he says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he dwells with them, and he shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So, more uh, evidence pointing to Jesus fulfilling uh, in the New Testament what was preordained in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So let me just say this very clearly. There is no disconnect between Moses and Jesus or between the Old Testament and the New. There is perfect harmony over and over and over again. Moses is affirmed in the scriptures right alongside uh, laying out the foundation of what would be to come with, with Jesus. Uh, When challenged by the Pharisees on the uh, the Mosaic rules of marriage and divorce, again, this is where they were trying to trick Jesus. I'm referring to Matthew 19.7. Jesus explained that nothing in God's perfect will had changed, only that Moses provided a rule of divorce because of the hardness of mankind's heart. So again, it's Jesus pointing to Moses right there in the Gospels. But from the beginning, it was not so, he added. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. Who marries her which is put away does commit adultery. So frequently throughout the New Testament, Jesus is confronted and harshly criticizes the Pharisees for their interpretations of Moses' law, but never the law itself. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law as the perfect Messiah. Uh, Matthew twenty three one through three. He commanded the people to say what the Pharisees said when they sat in Moses' seat, at which time they would only recite the Torah, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. In other words, they're all about what, what, uh, their mouth. They're they're that really. What I would break this down to is they are, they are sayers of the word and not doers. It's probably a bad way of laying it out, but hopefully you get the point. A striking example of Jesus' consistency with Moses appears in Luke sixteen thirty-one, when the Lord hints at his own resurrection, and this is what he says: This is before the re- this is before he's been crucified. He said, "If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead." So he's prophesying what will come, but he's also saying, "Had they not listened to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded." and that's similar to the account in uh um i believe it's luke where we're we're talking about um hades when uh in in lazarus bosom and you know he's he's he said you know please let my brothers uh, know he wanted his family to know and he and you know i think it was abraham who said to him if they do not listen to the prophets then you know they're, they're not going to listen to anything else. In other words, what was given to the law, what was given to the people, given the law, I should say, uh, was presented, if they're not going to be persuaded, which is the living word of God, this is Jesus. So if they're not persuaded by that, what he's really saying is they won't even pers- be persuaded when you say that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, let me let me bring this to a close, which I th- I think is very, very fitting here. Exodus sixteen fifteen, we see that when the children of Israel found themselves hungry during the sojourn, uh, as they were traveling through the wilderness, they were miraculously provided with manna from heaven. What did Moses say? This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This was the bread of the survival in the flesh. So here you, you've been given the bread, you've been given the manna, you're able to live, you're able to survive. But who is the bread of life? and it is Jesus. So if we look at John 6.32, Jesus explains that he is the ultimate bread of life from heaven. He is the manna. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. That true bread was the kind that provides eternal life. God is just, God is righteous, There's mercy and forgiveness available to those who sincerely repent, but there is righteous judgment for the unrepentant. That's very important. There's many people who think just being a good person, then that gives them a free ride. But that's without without confessing yourself to Jesus and asking him to come into your heart. It's just not the case. This is what God promises us in his future kingdom here on earth, which is part of the message of the gospel. It's the same message found in Exodus, and it's found throughout the Gospels of Jesus Christ. What is it? I am the bread of life, just as Jesus did in that in that last day uh, before uh, going to the cross. He broke bread and he and he gave, shared it with his uh, disciples, and, and he said, "Take of it, eat of it. This is my body, which is the lamb. Uh, th- 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 this is the bread that was given." So this, I would say that the the manna from heaven, which was given sustenance for them and, and it allowed them to eat and survive and live in the wilderness. And it was a free gift. They didn't have to do anything for it. Uh, I would say that kind of was a precursor to what was to come, which is the real bread from heaven, as Jesus himself said, that this is the bread that is provided by God, the father, which is Jesus Christ. So hopefully you see, can see the correlations in the book of Exodus that that flow alongside the uh uh the gospels throughout I believe I I think it's over the top obvious um and again this to me just points more and more to the validity of scripture because remember this is written thousands of years or 1500 years before Jesus before the fulfillment of what we can say so you know mathematically it is absolutely impossible that that these things could happen and line up the way that they do but because God is God then you know, you know that they do. So hopefully this information you found uh, enjoyable and, and valuable. I think any time that we're reading from the Scripture, no matter what I have to say, it's of it's value because the Word does go forth. It accomplishes everything it sets out to do. It does not return void. So therefore, uh, you know, I, I, I'm confident that you were built up in this, that you received that Word, and I pray that, it, you know, it was deposited in you in good ground. So if anybody has any further comments, questions, uh, prayer requests, please do not hesitate. Send uh, an email to russicoutlook at com. I'm happy to do so. Or, um, uh, you know, just if you have any, you know, if, if you don't know the Lord, if you have questions, if you're sitting on the fence, you're not sure what to believe, please email me or please just ask the Lord himself to reveal himself to you. That's all you have to do. And I promise you, He will, in his own way, find some way to get that message to you. He always does. He will not fail you. He's knocking at the door of your heart now. He says, knock, but will you open the door? So that's ultimately the question, and I will say that's up to you. Uh, So on that note, I, I, I thank you again for your time. You've been listening to the Russick Outlook. My name is Mark Russick, and remember, as always, just my opinion.